As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. To end 2021 here at The Athletic, we're talking to each of the North American Soccer Vertical's eight full-time staff writers about their favorite story they wrote this past year. Today, Paul Tenorio discusses his in-depth report about Inter-Miami and what happens when a team abruptly changes its front office approach midway through a season. I'm Alex Abnos, and this is Soccer Every Day for Tuesday, December 28th. First, your TV guide for today, as always, all times are Eastern. At 10 a.m., you'll have Watford versus West Ham United and Crystal Palace versus Norwich City. Both of those are on Peacock. Also at 10 a.m., you'll have Southampton versus Tottenham Hotspur on NBCSN. And just after that, at 3 p.m., you'll have Leicester City versus Liverpool on NBCSN. Obviously, a pretty big day for festive fixtures in the Premier League, but not so much happening elsewhere in the top divisions. Okay, we're having everybody talk about their favorite stories of 20... uh, I'll start this again and not completely fuck up the intro. Three, (laughs) two, one. Okay, we're having everybody talk about their favorite stories of 2021. And today I have with me Paul Tenorio. Paul, you've been on uh, parental leave the last uh, few months and you will be for the the next few weeks at least. Um, So thank you for taking some time out to to talk about some of your work this year. Uh, Most of your work recently, at least, that, that... is coming to mind is U.S. men's national team related. Uh, but your favorite piece this year that you chose to talk about is MLS related, another kind of specialty for you, especially when it comes to how teams are built and uh, the ways teams mm, have fun with uh, the many uh, MLS roster rules that are in place. It's about Inter-Miami and the headline is we launched a brand, not a team. That's in quotes. Inside Inter-Miami's dira- disastrous start in MLS that story will be linked in the show notes. But Paul, I want to start with this. What is the origin of the story? Why did you choose to pursue it? And uh, where did it come from? Well, the funny thing is, Alex, I mean, you know this being one of my editors. It's not very often that I do a bigger feature that's like not my pitch, not my idea. Yeah. Um, And this one was actually Brooks Peck, um, another editor, a soccer editor at The Athletic. Um, And Basically, Brooks was kind of like, we we need to do something on what happened in Miami. And it was, I think the idea kind of came from Felipe Cardenas um, had a really big story on what went wrong in Atlanta 
um, and kind of dug in deep. And, and the story did really well. And it was so, so well done by Felipe. And it was kind of like, well, we should do this and look into some of these other bigger disasters in Major League Soccer and yeah. kind of dig into what went wrong, how it went wrong. And and so it started with that. And actually, you know, at the very, very beginning, um, we had a couple people, Sam Stasekul and Felipe, um, along with myself, like started to kind of make some phone calls just to see, like, did we have anyone that we could find? And then the story kind of went quiet for a while. I think just other things were happening. And then all of a sudden it was like, no, like we're writing this story and and Paul, like you're writing the story. <laughs> yeah. And um, I, I think it kind of happened because I started to get some calls back from sources and, and it just took off from there. But it, it, I think the credit for it goes to Brooks um, and Alex. I think you guys talked about it on like an editor's call or something. But Brooks, yeah. had the, Brooks had the initial conversation with me about it. And then I think, you know, really ultimately it comes back to like Felipe doing a killer job on his Atlanta story and, and making the rest of us have to be like, okay, you know, Atlanta's not the only team that that has drama going on behind the scenes. Well, your story delves very much so in into that drama on the Inter Miami side and you know, we don't want to give too much away in this conversation because the idea is that people will go back and read it if they if they haven't already, but can you sum up a little bit basically like what the situation was at Miami that that we felt was was worth investigating because it seems like such old news to me now. I don't remember what it, what it even was at the time when we yeah. were just like starting to look into it. Well, I mean, I think the big thing was the Miami got hit with a, with unprecedented punishment for signing Blaze Matuidi to essentially a secret DP contract, designated player contract. Yeah, um, they were paying him several million dollars under the table, um, and Major League Soccer found out about it, and so there were so many unique things that happened there. Um, and I think that that it was like, how did we get to this point? You know, here's this team had so much um, just it was like a circus around them coming into Major League Soccer for many, many years. Were they going to get in and what was going to happen? And then once they were in, it was like, what's this team going to look like? And then it was a total disaster and you could see it unfolding. And so it was like, OK, like, let's lay out what happened here. Like there were some. And, and they came into the league during the pandemic. So it was like even more on top of that. Yeah. Right. And they, they built their a second stadium. So it was all of that. But it, it really started with Matuidi and, and kind of building back from there. Like go into Matuidi and then pull out and say, okay, it's like, is, was it just one mistake? No, it wasn't. There were so many things that led into that moment. Right. And who all did you talk to for this story? And I say this and I ask this knowing that there are, you know, a number of anonymous sources people you talked to on background people you talked to on deep background people that went to, that you talked to off the record so i understand you can't give me like names uh at, at this moment but basically maybe you can just sum up like what the reporting process was like for for a piece like this yeah um i talked to a lot of people and you know it's one of those stories where one interview leads into another because you get somebody on the phone and then you say, oh, well, I heard this and this and this. And it's like a little nugget from behind the scenes that only somebody on the inside would know. And then that prompts that person to talk to you. And that's kind of how things started to unfold was like you get one person to say something or um, or even sometimes it was a league, you know, somebody from outside of Miami that that would give me a nugget that they heard. And then you take that back and you, you call other sources and try to build it out. I think the interesting thing for me 
Um, the funny thing is like, I'm talking about this story as my favorite of the year. It was probably like my least favorite story to work on because (laughs) what happened was like, I was kind of given a hard deadline, um, because this story ran in our a one function. And so there was like a set date for the story to run and there wasn't any wiggle room on it. And I actually think like, had I had another week or two weeks to report it out that there would have been even more detail and more, um, pieces to this story that were told in this in this article that would have made it i think better but sometimes you don't sometimes that doesn't you just don't have the luxury of that and so what ended up happening was like like i said to you like it started way at the beginning with like a couple phone calls with three reporters then it was like a few weeks of silence and then it was like i started to make calls again and then it was like a source here and a source there and then and then there was like a, a ping to me like a reminder like hey like this story's running next week you need to get a draft in by friday and like this story is going to run on, I think it was a Monday. It might've been a Tuesday, but I think it was a Monday. Yeah. And that weekend, the next few days, um, once I filed my first draft were some of the most intense I've ever had as a reporter, because what ended up happening was all of a sudden there was like an onslaught of people calling me back, um, of sources from all different places that were adding so much color and so much information to the story. And I remember spending all of, um, I think it was a Saturday night, sitting on my porch in my front, in front of my house because I needed a change of scenery for my office because I had been in my office all week working on this piece. Yeah, And I like poured a, a bourbon and I sat, it was like, and I have two, two little kids. So the only time I could really work was um, at night. So yeah. it was like, I think I sat down at like 7.30 p.m. and I ended up working through 1 a.m. writing the second draft of the piece. And it was so stressful. And so there was a really good feeling once it was done. Like it was a relief to be done. For a while, I was like thinking about the things that I could have had in the piece if we had, if I had had a little bit more time. But there was also this great sense of relief that I felt really proud of what I had turned around in uh, a very stressful deadline environment, which is... I mean, typically, actually, like I, I do some of my best work when I'm like forced to sit down and do it. So it was really interesting. Was that the biggest difficulty you ran into? Just like the 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 process of, of getting it all together like that? Or was there something else that gave you a little bit more trouble? Yeah, no, I think I think there were two things. The first was, yeah, you can't control when people call you back. So <laughs> yeah. to, to get an onslaught of phone calls on deadline that really made the story better. Thankfully, I, I was I was thankful, first of all, that I got those calls. Um, but yeah, it added a whole different layer to the writing process that you usually I would have like most of my reporting done when I sit. And in this case, I thought I did. And then I had like a whole bunch more that, that popped up late. Um, but <clears throat> I think the, the, the struggle with the actual story was there was a lot. There was a lot to go through and then you're balancing what sources are telling you with what they're telling you off the record and you're trying to get some stuff on the record that would really make the story better. And and so being able to tell as full of a story as I could tell um, in the time frame I had, and I have regrets about it too. Like I think that um, you know later on after I reported the story, I don't think I've ever even said this to anyone. I was like so mad at myself because like you said, I cover U.S. soccer. And, you know, there had been the whole controversy with U.S. soccer and Glassdoor, um, the re- the reviews of the work environment. And I went and looked at Glassdoor for Inner Miami after the story ran. Um, I actually got a DM from somebody being like, hey, like I worked there like you, like 
scratched the surface for like kind of like the the underlings that worked there you know like yeah like i was talking you know you can you can get some higher level stuff but like it's harder to find like that you know lower lower low and like the Glassdoor re- reviews are terrible for Inter Miami and like all over wow. um, Jorge Mas for his um, leadership of that office. And so like, I was like, man, that would have been great in the story. You know, <laughs> um, you look back and you're like, man, but that was the hard part is like, you knew, I knew some of this stuff, but you want to be really on point with your reporting and make sure everything is buttoned up to like the best, best possible. Because anytime a story like this runs about a team, they're going to be angry and typically what I find is they look for like the smallest thing that they can say you got wrong, like the day of the week that something happened or whatever they can do to try to call into question the reporting. We saw that with Atlanta United and Felipe's Felipe story. Yeah. So I just didn't want to have any of that. And so like if I felt like a little bit squeamish about something, I didn't run it. And um, so that was the hard that to me, that was the hardest part. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit higher bar you have to meet, uh, certainly for for stories like that. Uh, you mentioned a little bit about the reaction, but before we get to that, uh, just one last question, sort of on the support on the reporting process. Was there anything in the process of making all these calls and writing the narrative of how this team was put together and all these things that surprised you? Like, did you learn any anything that that really kind of caught you off guard or that you weren't expecting uh, to learn? No, I mean, I think for me, the bigger thing was like, this is what happens when you look inside a club and you see that there's not one vision, like it's not surprising. I've written about it a bunch with the LA galaxy where you have too many chefs in the kitchen and there's not one guiding principle. And when that starts to happen, when Bruce arena left, they became a mess. It's like not a surprise. And, and that's what was happening in Miami. I mean, you look at the first half of their roster build and it was these young players from South America that didn't work out great. And then you look at the second half of the build and it's, Iguain and Matuidi and these older players who are getting paid so much money. And so to me, it was like, it wasn't surprising, but it was kind of like, that's where things went wrong with Inter Miami. I mean, you can blame, obviously, cheating to sign Matuidi is like its own thing, but that doesn't yeah. happen if there isn't a clear pivot in strategy. And, and um, you know, I think that goes down to uh, um, competing visions between, you know, certainly between like Paul McDonough, who was the CSO and COO at the time, and David Beckham, who technically runs the sporting department there and is the owner. And obviously, one person won out, right? Because David Beckham's still there. He brought in his friend as the coach. He brought They signed several more um, players going into this past year that were of that same kind of profile, older, established guys, not so many of the younger South American style. Um, and that to me was like the big takeaway is like, where did things go wrong? It went wrong when you see like two ideas about how to build a team and you force that into one season and one roster. <laughs> yeah. It's, typically doesn't end well. Well, Inter Miami is going to be dealing with the fallout, uh, from basically everything that they've done over the, over their first two years of existence. They have a pretty hefty fine. Uh, coming, they can't use. I think it's what one and a half million of allocation money um, for the next season, and they're kind of trying to build a roster around all that. Uh, do I have that right, by the way? Yeah, it's uh, about it's about two and a half over two years, so it's like it's like one and a quarter per year, essentially. Sure. Um, and yeah, that's a tough hold. Like even with this Lewis Morgan trade, one point two million people are like, oh well, they're good for next year. They dug out of the hole. No, that money's split in half. You know, they still have yeah. to dig out of another 600000 in allocation 
before they get out of a hole um, to, to try to buy down their roster. So there's so, several more moves that they're going to have to make to be cap compliant, to be to have a chance to put together a roster for, for next year, um, a competitive roster for next year. I, I would expect several more sales for Inter-Miami just to try to get out of that, that hole. Well, Paul, lastly, when this story came out, it obviously was a pretty big deal in MLS circles. What sort of reaction uh, did you get? What do you remember about it, both from readers and also obviously from the club and the league and the people that you're writing about and, and, and all of that? Yeah, I mean, I think it was interesting because I think there was a really good reaction with kind of the general public who who wanted to kind of have an idea of what went wrong there. And, and there was a positive reaction there. Obviously, Inter-Miami fans weren't happy with the story. They were like, oh, you, you're dropping it now because we're starting to win and things are going well. And I was kind of like, things are going well. You're going to win like three games in a row against like the worst teams in the league. Like, the reality is this roster is not very good and, and, you know, wait till we get to the end of the year and you'll see. And like the things I'm writing about in the pieces in this piece is like, I'm not making it up. Like this is deeply reported and it's going to the things that we talk about in the story of the fallout, um, what the, you know, the fact that they're saying, Hey, this is going to take time to dig out of this hole. Like that's for you guys to understand, you know, um, as far as, you know, usually from the league sources and, and team sources, you start to hear stuff, right away it was actually pretty quiet i think there was kind of like one i think there might have been a little bit of a sigh of relief that it didn't go as far as maybe some people were thinking it might go um and two i think there it was also like very clearly something that was well sourced um they didn't no one was surprised by it you know we we went to the club before it ran they had they knew it was coming um and so it was actually like for a big story like that, it's probably the quietest reaction I've had, which I took to be a good sign. Like it wasn't like I was getting like, you know, blown up by people that, you know, I did a hack job or anything like that. It was it was it was pretty subdued from yeah. Miami. Right. Well, Paul, it's a really, really great story. I was rereading it before we started uh, talking and it's it's it was so cool to see at the time. And I know that it was very stressful to write, but I'm glad that, uh, that it came out the way it did. And I'm glad that it's on the athletic. And with that, I'm going to let you get back to your paternity leave. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time and happy new year. Thanks for having me. If I'm coming back from leave, this is the thing to come back for. So appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> this show is produced by Mike Zimmerman with help from John Hayes. You can get ad-free versions of the show by subscribing to The Athletic, and you can get 33% off a year subscription by going to theathletic.com slash soccer every day. Thanks for listening, and happy soccer to you all.